Life presents the toughest challenges. Every day you are faced with decisions that test your ability to express who you really want to be in this world. We're told to keep saying affirmations and keep thinking positively, but what do you do when that stuff doesn't work? Welcome to the Overwhelmed Brain, where you'll learn to make decisions that are right for you so that you can create the life you want now. Hello, this is Paul Coliani, personal empowerment coach and host of The Overwhelmed Brain. This is the personal growth show for the critical thinker. On every episode, we'll talk about practical down-to-earth steps to help you improve your mood and keep you sane in this powerful journey we call life. Everything I talk about in this show should not be mistaken for actual medical advice or treatment and is intended to be for informational and educational purposes only. All right, let's talk about sex, baby. <laughs> I want to talk about when sex actually starts. I know it's odd to, to say it that way, but sex actually starts uh, nowhere near the bedroom. Sex actually starts nowhere near you starting to undress. Sex is not about undressing and making things happen, at least the work up to it. Let's put it this way. Foreplay can be minutes, hours, days, weeks, and even years before sex, uh, or at least good, healthy, enjoyable sex can be had. Because there are people that um, need the emotional buildup, the emotional charge, and the emotional connection with sex, as opposed to other people that just want that raw physical desire fulfilled. And I'm sure there's a lot of people in the middle between that, between the emotions, between the physical desire, because uh, I think what happens when you have the ultimate best sex life you can have is that you feel good throughout. And on top of that, you aren't bringing in uh, insecurities into your sex life. I think a lot of us do that, right? We bring in our insecurities into our sex life, and then we can't enjoy it as much as we'd like to. So there's a lot to talk about here, but um, what I want to focus on really is when sex actually starts. So if you have kids and they listen to the show and they're like, what's this sex thing? <laughs> well, it might be a good time to talk about it or not. Totally up to you, but um, we're not going to get graphic here. I'm going to keep it very uh, low key and tame but um, hopefully provide information that uh, if you need it, if your sex life isn't all that it could be, maybe this will help. So let me reemphasize something. Sex starts when you're at the store shopping for food and then you decide to look for that special treat that your partner talked about. Sex starts when you're at home watching TV and you're thinking about what your partner would like to watch instead of you. Sex starts when you're at work. I know this is strange. <laughs> and you go on your lunch break and you decide to send your partner a thinking of you text. Sex can also start when you're taking a walk, wondering what needs you can fulfill for your partner. Now, this isn't about manipulation. This isn't about what specifically can I do to turn my partner on so that I can get my sexual needs fulfilled. It's not about that at all. This is actually coming from a genuine place. And like I said, for the example I used, when you're at the store and you're shopping and you go, I wonder if my partner would like this. And then you bring it home and they go, wow, you really, you thought of me. That was very nice. That activates chemicals in their brain, in their body, that aren't really directly associated with let's have sex, although that can happen. They're associated with good feelings. They're associated with love. They're associated with, wow, this person's really treating me right. And especially the feelings of wanting to be with this person, wanting to be with you. And if they want to be with you, that means they typically want more of you. They typically trust you more. They feel safe with you. They feel safe being vulnerable with you. 
because you keep showing up providing for them, providing for their needs, uh, showing that you're listening to them, showing that you hear them, showing that you understand them, showing that you want to understand them. Because what I see a lot is that uh, couples will often wonder why their partner doesn't have sex with them, doesn't want sex with them. And aside from any sexual trauma from their past, which is a whole different set of variables, if your partner has had any sexual trauma, then this particular episode may or may not be helpful for you. Well, actually, it will be helpful, but uh, don't expect everything to turn around overnight. Uh, Sexual trauma, sexual abuse, child sexual abuse, all of that carrying into relationships really affects people at, at a deeper level and there's a lot more going on there. So if you're in that kind of situation, that's more one-on-one. That's a different episode about sexual abuse, but uh, not necessarily this particular episode, although I do believe this will help. But back to what I was talking about. If you ever question, why won't my partner have sex with me? You know, of course, there's a number of variables that can take place. There are actual times when a, a headache is real. There are actual times when your body isn't in the mood, you're not in the mood, work has tired you out, other people have um, bothered you and you still have these bothers inside of you, you still have these triggers inside of you, all kinds of things. But let's just say that um, that's not apparent and you you just want some good old-fashioned happy fun sex with your partner. The buildup is more important than the sex itself. In fact, I would venture to say that if you really want a healthy sex life, make everything but sex as healthy as possible. Because when it comes to sex, sex is the end-all, be-all, byproduct or end result of everything that has built up to that point. And it is the culmination of every minute of every day that has led up to this point. Now, that's not necessarily 100% true, but uh, what you're doing when you're not having sex is you're building a bigger picture of the relationship. If you argue a lot and you never come to an agreement on anything or many things, then the bigger picture of your relationship is mostly argument, uncomfortableness, unpleasantness, and now it's time to have sex. What are you bringing into that the sexual part of your relationship. You're bringing this big picture. And if you have a big picture that is mostly negative, then sex is one of those things that either one or both of you just want to get over with. And that's not fun. <laughs> that's not the way to, that you want it to go. You want it to be fun and enjoyable and great. You want it to be what you want it to be. I mean, we all know what We want sex to be. We want it to feel good. We want it to be intimate. We want it to be a little wild, sometimes erotic, and all these things that really turn us on. But the big picture is what you bring into the bedroom, the big picture of your relationship. This is why I go to sex starts way before you even think about it. It forms the big picture of your relationship. And sex can be great when you define it the same way I define love. I believe that love's best definition, at least the way I see it, is supporting your partner's happiness. So if you treat sex that way, supporting your partner's happiness, then you know where I'm going. Then what that means is you go at the pace they want. You figure out what turns them on. You listen for every single noise they make and you take note (laughs) and you think, hey, they liked that. I'll be sure to do that again. You do that 90% of the time, you're going to have a better sex life. You focus on what your partner wants. You focus on pleasing your partner, even at the expense of your own pleasure. Stay with me. I'm not going to leave you there. You focus on your partner's pleasure, even at the expense of your own pleasure, even if you don't, quote, get any. You do that, you are more likely to create a more passionate, more intimate 
much deeper sexual experience with your partner. Because guess what? Anyone who gets treated that way, who really feels like their partner wants them to be happy, wants them to be pleased, is going to want to return the favor. Now, this isn't always true. Sometimes there's the pleaser and then the taker. If you have a relationship where one's the giver or the pleaser and the other one's the taker, then it may not ever equalize. It may not ever come to a balance and you have to consider if that's what you want in your life. But when you have two people that believe in reciprocation, then the one who focuses on nothing but pleasing their partner and making sure their partner is happy is also going to receive the same treatment. But the idea is to go into sex without the expectation of receiving it. If that sounds odd or bad because you think, well, I want it too, then I just want you to try it. Because sex is a problem when there are trust issues. For example, um, and I see this in a lot of heterosexual relationships where the woman will not be able to trust her partner because her partner wants sex for himself, not really caring too much about if the woman gets pleasure from it. It's from a very selfish place. I want to be satisfied. And the partner might even say, I deserve to be satisfied because sex is a very personal thing. It's, it's intimate, yet we're both going to get off, right? We're both going to be happy at the end, right? Uh, the answer is no. It doesn't always happen that way. In fact, many times, if you are completely selfish and into you getting your own pleasure, then your partner's less likely to be pleased by that. I mean, there's all kinds of variables here. Sometimes your partner is very pleased that you're pleased. But if you're not reciprocating that feeling, that sentiment back, then your sex life is going to start to wane. And I don't think you want that. And if you're in a relationship now, if you have a somewhat active or inactive sex life, but you know, you have sex every now and then, the idea is to focus on what your partner wants. Listen to them. Feel your way. Listen for the words. Sense their movement. Be acutely active in observation. And let me tell you what happens when you do this. You start to think outside yourself. Because sex tends to be a, oh, I want some, all about me kind of thing. Even though I want to please you, it's still going to be for me. Those two thought processes can exist in the same uh, stratosphere. <laughs> I want sex for me and I want sex for you. That can happen and that's when a good reciprocation can take place. If you want to rebuild your sex life in an emotionally healthy way, in a physically healthy way, then it's time to just focus on your partner. Now that doesn't mean it has to stay that way. But usually what ends up happening is that because you focus so much on your partner, you tend to let your own needs uh, slip a little bit purposefully at first. But what happens is your needs get met in more ways. And you may not feel that at first. But if you are genuinely into your partner and helping your partner reach maximum pleasure. This sounds like a commercial, a condom commercial. <laughs> if you want to help your partner reach maximum pleasure, then concentrate on them. The idea is to uh, let go of your needs in the sexual moment and focus on their needs. Now, let's rewind a little bit. Sex starts when? It starts every other time when you're not thinking about sex. It starts when you take the time to think about your partner and making them happy and doing things that show that you listen to them, that you understand them, that you want them to be satisfied in life, not just with certain things, but with everything. You support their path and you support their journey. And the more you do this outside of the bedroom, the better they'll feel inside, the more they'll trust you, the more they'll feel vulnerable with you. And the more vulnerable someone can feel with you, the more intimate you can become sexually and the more pleasure you derive sexually. Because 
sex is like one of the most vulnerable activities that you can have with someone else because now you're letting it all hang out. <laughs> you're exposing it all. And now you're going to make different noises than you make when you're talking in public. It's going to be a whole different you because you're in a different state. You're in that uh, hopefully ecstatic state. Now, let me talk about um, when sex can and can't or might not work. There are several types of people, especially uh, when you have sex in your relationship, that make it work or make it not work. And I'm just going to go through these and uh, see where we go with them. One couple might have a dominant person along with another dominant person. Typically, when you have two people butting heads like that, it can work. Uh, sometimes what you'll find is that they're both just aggressive and they both appreciate the dominance of each other. Uh, I don't have the facts to back up what I'm saying right now, but I can't imagine a dominant person and another dominant person really having a deep emotional connection. There's always some sort of, I don't know, superiority game or fight for leadership or alpha, and uh, that may or may not work. And then you have the dominant and submissive. Now, the dominant and submissive can work a lot better than the dominant and dominant. If you have someone that really appreciates being submissive and the other person really appreciates being dominating, then you have a leader and a follower, more or less. Now, I'm not talking about whips and chains, but that can also be part of it as well. I'm not going to talk about S&M, but um, when I say dominant and submissive, I just mean the personality type. Someone's more dominant. What they do with it, if they turn into a fetish, that's that's something else for another day. And then we have um, passive and passive and also passive and aggressive. I guess we could have aggressive and aggressive as well, but that's very similar to uh, dominant, dominant as well. But the aggressive person is very self-centered, very self-focused, and probably shares a lot with the dominant person. But um, sometimes you can be dominant and still observant and caring about what your partner wants and needs. But uh, typically the aggressive person just cares about themselves. I just want to get off. I just want to make it happen. I just want this for me. It doesn't matter too much what my partner gets as long as I get what I want. And there might be a thought process of my partner's going to feel pleasure no matter what I do. And if you think that, that is illogical. That is uh, thinking that will create um, a big rift in your romantic life and your sex life. So I would highly recommend if you think that your partner is feeling pleasure just because I'm doing this and you're not listening, you're not observant, you're not aware, and you're not um, taking mental notes when you're doing certain things that they really do like, then you may not be pleasing them at all. You may find out that you are just uh, going through the motions for yourself, but they're not getting anything out of it. I guarantee you, if you are like this, if you are not concerned about what they get out of sex, that you will probably not be in a relationship that uh, you enjoy for too long. Unless you just totally don't care, you're unempathetic and just are selfish and just don't care about what they think. Uh, the relationship might last if they choose to stay in it, but uh, it's not going to be enjoyable probably at all and will break down and eventually disintegrate. So you have all these um, personalities, the dominant and the aggressive and the passive. Oh, I didn't talk about passive. Passive is like, oh, you know, anything's fine. You know, we can just do anything you want. Typically, if you are passive like that, I would highly recommend you start to figure out what you like and share that with your partner. No matter who you are, you should always share what you like with your partner so that it's good. I mean, if what you're seeking is possible. <laughs> I mean, if you have requests that just aren't possible, then that's a different story. But you could at least talk to them and within the confines of what you have available to you, what resources you have, and the person you have with you, then you can discuss what you enjoy. Some people are nervous to discuss sex with their partner. Some people don't want to discuss sex at all, like it's um, some religious belief that they have, or discussing sex is taking away from it, it uh, taking away the intimacy, taking away the romance. I think it's okay 
to discuss what you do and what you don't like. Now, is there a certain time to do it? Should it be in the bedroom? Well, you know, you could bring it up while you're getting in the mood and just offer it as a suggestion. Now, this really goes for couples who do have some sort of communication going on in the first place, some sort of honest, open communication. If you don't even have that outside of the bedroom, then you're not going to have it in the bedroom. That's why it's so important for sex to start way before you get in the bedroom and work on all this other big picture relationship stuff so that when you're in the bedroom, it becomes a lot more comfortable to, I don't want to say discuss, but, you know, get an understanding of from your partner and from your, and for yourself. So um, with those personality types, the dominant and submissive and the passive and the aggressive, I've created in my mind what I would consider the perfect personality type for both partners. If you can be attentive, receptive, observant, and accommodating, I believe that you can create a very, very good sex life. Because when you're attentive, you're catering to their needs. You want to help them derive pleasure from the experience. When you're receptive, you're listening, you're open, you're making sure that when they say something, you're not offended by it. I'm sure that has happened a lot, right? Like, you want what? Instead of saying that, just be open, be receptive, and listen. Because the more receptive you are, the safer they'll feel sharing with you. And then you have observant. When you're observant, you're listening, you're feeling, you're sensing their movements. As you do something, it's uh, you're checking for stimulus response. Like, when I do this, you move that way. When I do that, you make this sound. I might even say, hey, did you enjoy that? And then I'll take a mental note. And then, of course, accommodating, meaning you do what you can to accommodate what they want. When you're accommodating, you are really making it about them. So there's one tiny perspective of sex that would make a massive difference in your life if you're not already applying some of these uh, principles. Um, Like I said, uh, sexual trauma creates an entirely different set of variables and uh, requires a different approach. And um, it's very similar to some of the things that we talked about here, but there's a lot more safety and trust required, needed, a lot longer time to accommodate, be attentive, be observant, and be receptive. Just things take longer when there was sexual trauma. And I would add to this personality type complete patience and understanding. So if you are with someone who's had any type of sexual trauma, add patience and understanding as well. And you do have to be a certain type of person to be able to wait and be patient and continue going along a path of not walking on eggshells, but just being very sensitive to their needs. Because what happens is they'll get triggered off of something that seems completely benign. And then you're like, what did I do? (laughs) What's the problem? And if you're attentive and receptive and observant and accommodating, then you're going to go, oh, they don't like that, so I won't do it again. It takes, like I said, a special type of person uh, to be with someone who is in that state. But it can and does work if you have the patience and they're also working on healing themselves. I mean, if you're with someone who's not looking at their past, doesn't want to deal with their past, then they'll hold on to triggers. I mean, I'm not talking about everyone, but a lot of people will hold on to their triggers if they choose not to deal with them and heal from them which means that those things may never change. And then you'll have to come to a place in yourself and think, hmm, do I want this in my life? Do I love this person to be with them and be okay with the way our sexual relationship is now? Or do I need more? And if so, uh, maybe we need to have the talk. Again, that's a different episode for a different day, but uh, you get where I'm going. Otherwise, If you are with someone who really is open to wanting to improve your sex life, then I would highly recommend you utilize some of this and start sex way before you even think about sex. 
Because I tell you what, when you're able to pinch your partner in the butt and not expect anything in return, that's going to give you big points. (laughs) I hope this helps you. Let's get to our next segment called Ask Paul right after this. Welcome back. This is Ask Paul. This is where I read a listener email on the air and do my best to help them through a challenge. I'm going to read an email from someone I'm going to call Marsha. She says, I've been listening to your podcast every single day since my ex-boyfriend dumped me completely out of the blue. I was wondering if you had any tips on how to move on when there is no closure at all. He said he loved me and not to worry about us. And a few hours later, he called me and told me he didn't love me anymore. He completely cut me off and only replied to me saying he doesn't know how to handle this and he can't do it anymore. He won't give me any closure. I was his most serious girlfriend and I think maybe he might have been scared of commitment. I was more ready for the future than he was. I'm having so much trouble moving on and accepting that he completely changed in the span of one day. He said he was stressed the week before and he was cold and snappy at every little thing I did, but he still said it wasn't me. Then suddenly he blamed me for all the problems we had and he told me that he was trying, but that was never enough for me. I never asked him for anything. All I wanted was his love. We were living together, then he decided to move out suddenly. Naturally, I got upset. He then blamed me because he regretted the move and told me I was too much. Now he's already talking to other girls, and I've been struggling with suicidal thoughts due to not feeling good enough. What's wrong with me if I can't keep someone who said he would never hurt me like my abusive exes did? He made me feel responsible for all of this and left me to deal with it all on my own, and now I'm drowning under the weight. I try to think of the future, and I just feel like I'm going to screw up every time I take a step outside. I have trust issues now that I'll meet other guys and suddenly think they're going to do the same thing and just run off. He did everything for me at the start, and I did my best for him. I supported him in his hobbies. I gave him rides. I did the cooking, the cleaning. I understand we broke up, but I don't understand why he did it the way he did it. He just ran off, and he didn't even see me face to face to tell me. I feel like I will never move on and find a way to heal from this open wound. He just left me sitting there, not even knowing a reason why it ended. I want to hate him to make it easier, but he really made me believe he would never hurt me. All right, Marsha, thank you so much for sharing that. And, uh, you know, I can totally relate. Uh, In my first long-term relationship, I honestly believe that it was going to last forever. I believe that this relationship was great and there were no issues whatsoever. And then one day it ended and I was thrown off course, not knowing what to do next, wondering why I was unlovable, why someone would leave me, what's wrong with me. And uh, it was all about not feeling worthy, not feeling lovable. And it sounds like maybe you're in that uh, space too. So I'm sorry you feel that way. I really am because that feeling is not fun. That's a nasty, yucky, terrible feeling when someone dumps us, when someone leaves us. And then there are all kinds of uh, negative attachments to it, like uh, when they leave us and now they're talking to other people. When my first girlfriend left me, uh, in just a few months she got married to someone else. (laughs) So I had the impact of her leaving and the next impact that, hey, she's married and probably happy again, and here I am Here I am in my misery. But let me tell you what happens and what maybe should happen with you. One of the things that you said is that you wish you had closure. I think one of the biggest mistakes we make when someone breaks up with us is that we ourselves don't create the closure. We wait for it. We wait for their next step. We wait to see what they're going to do next just in case they come back to us. I mean, this is if you didn't want the breakup and you're, you still have feelings for them. Maybe if I say the right thing, maybe, I do the right, maybe if I do the right thing, maybe they'll be by themselves thinking about how great the relationship could be or maybe they want to try again. And so we wait for that closure. And then a week goes by, then a month. And then a year. And if we haven't gotten that closure yet, we hold on to pain. We hold on to stagnation. We are in a rut until that closure comes from outside of us. 
Closure doesn't come from anywhere but inside of you. Now I know, for example, uh, that you can say, well, if he said this, then that would bring me closure. And you might even look at my first long-term relationship and go, well, she got married, so you have no choice but to accept that she's no longer available and she's not coming back. And I could go, yes, but I still have to create the closure. And the reason being is because I have to come to terms with what I am seeing, what I am perceiving, what is happening. I have to come to terms with myself to say, oh, because that happened, I need to make a choice. It's a choice. Closure is choosing to close the door of one part of your life and open it to a new part of your life or another part of your life. Closure is a choice because what happens is even if you're, I'm going to lay out this scenario, even though it might be unpleasant. Let's just say that um, your boyfriend broke up with you and then a week later he died. That's not pleasant, especially because you still had feelings for him. And um, now you don't know why he broke up. And now there's absolutely no chance of him coming back. Let me ask you this. Would you hang on to the idea that he would come back? It's a dumb question. (laughs) I know it is. But would you hang on to that idea? Just it's a simple yes or no. The logical answer is, well, no, I wouldn't hang on to the idea that he would come back because he's not here anymore. He's gone. And when you when you think that way, what choices do you have? You have very limited choices. You can choose to hang on to the idea that he's coming back or you can choose to go, wow, this is the worst thing that ever happened. But I have no choice but to accept that he's never coming back. Now, what will happen in that moment when you make that choice is that the door will be closed. It won't be entirely locked and welded shut. Not yet, but it will be closed because closure sometimes is the hardest decision that you don't want to make. Closure is an acceptance of something you don't want to accept. Sometimes. Closure is when you get to a point of, wow, I can't move on unless I close that door. Unless I close that chapter of my life. I can't move on. So I'm going to hang on instead. This is why some people grieve for years. You know, when someone dies in their life and they grieve for years and years and years, you might be able to pinpoint why that is because they refuse to close the door that and accept that their loved one really died i refuse to close the door because if i accept that he really died then it's true i don't know what to do with that so i don't want to go there i don't want to visit it i just want the door to stay open because letting it go means what means pain means uh, you'll reach the height of pain you haven't reached the height of pain yet until you've reached closure When you come to closure, the height of pain, in this example, uh, hits you. It's the precipice of pain. You're climbing the pain mountain, and it's getting harder and harder as you reach the top, the precipice, and go, oh my God, there really is no way back to what I had. And that closure comes, whether you like it or not. And then you're able to start the downhill journey where it gets a little easier after the hardest pain you've had to experience. I want you to think of it in, that, in those terms because if you depend on someone else to give you closure, you'll never reach it. What I'm saying may not be 100% true because it is your choice to make. You have to make that choice. Now, I know where you're going with your letter. You're like, why did he do this to me? He promised me he would treat me right. He, would, he promised this. He promised that. And he didn't pull through. This is an unfortunate fact about life is that A, sometimes people commit to things and then they break their commitment. I mean, that is a fact of life. I hate to say it. It doesn't change throughout life. Um, When I got with my wife, the promise was that we would be married for the rest of our lives. And then she changed her mind. She didn't want to deal with it anymore. She wanted to get out of the relationship. She chose to change her mind. 
Do I look at her and go, what? You promised. I want vengeance. <laughs> like I was talking about in the commercial. I want vengeance. No, I didn't do that. I came to a realization of myself that sometimes I make commitments and I can no longer keep them because what was originally my perception is no longer my perception. What was originally my wife's perception in our marriage was I was this sweet, unconditionally loving, non-judgmental guy, non-emotionally abusive guy. Turns out I was judgmental. Turns out I was putting her through emotional abuse. I know this now, but back then, uh, when we were starting, I didn't show this side of myself to begin with. And even when it started coming out, she thought, well, maybe it's just a fluke. Maybe he's just acting this way because he's upset. And then a year later, she saw more of it, and she was hoping I'd change. And then a few years later, she saw more of it. And then we had conversations about it, and she was still hoping I would change. And I was telling her I'm trying to change, but it never happened. And I'm willing to bet that in your relationship, you might have seen clues as well to his behavior. Well, he's doing things that I don't really like, but uh, maybe he'll change. Maybe it'll get better. Or he did promise me that uh, he would treat me right. So you're always looking for good references instead of identifying what could be signs of the relationship degrading. You're always looking for those good references, hoping it works out. So we tend to ignore or turn a blind eye to what doesn't fit in the relationship, what doesn't work in the relationship. But the point is, we all have the ability to make a commitment and break that commitment because what we perceived at the time is no longer true. And it probably has nothing to do with you. It probably has nothing to do with you, Marsha. It probably has something to do with him. Like, I went to this relationship thinking that I would find a submissive, subservient girl that is not going to argue with what I want in this relationship, is, is going to support me, and is going to leave me alone when I want to be left alone, is going to give me sex whenever I want it. He may have had all these fantasies of what the perfect relationship was for him, and no matter what you did, even if you showed up in every single way possible, his criteria might have changed or increased over time. He may have found nuances about the relationship or being in a relationship, like always having someone around. It doesn't matter if it's you or the Pope or <laughs> anyone. He might not like having someone around all the time. There's all kinds of things that we go through that change our criteria over time, change our values over time. I once, when I was in high school, I dated someone who smoked cigarettes. And at that time, I was like, oh, I don't really care. Just don't smoke around me and chew some gum before we see each other. Later on, I developed a value of I don't want to be with someone with cigarettes. So here I am committing to a relationship with someone who smokes cigarettes, and my values change, and my criteria changes. And now I don't want to be with someone who smokes cigarettes. I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. I'm just saying that's not what I want in my life. So that's what I would seek when I was single, someone who didn't smoke cigarettes. But it shows that my criteria had changed, just like your criteria changes over time. Even when you get into a relationship with the most perfect person, there's always going to be something that either bothers you or that you wish was a little different or something. Yet, it's just who they are. We're all unique individuals with our own likes and dislikes, and we will not match 100% ever. <laughs> ever we're not going to match 100% some people can handle what doesn't match some people can handle the mismatches and some people can't and they think it's a either a threat to themselves to their identity uh, doesn't make their relationship the way they want it some people are perfectionists they want perfection in their partner that's what I used to do I used to want perfection out of my partner and no matter what she did it was never good enough but that doesn't mean I'm unlovable that doesn't mean you're unlovable. We have to give someone the gift of choice. We have to give someone the gift of what's right for them may not be what's right for us. We also have to realize that it's not only about love. I can say I love you so much and I'll never leave you ever. But if you decide to um, bring drugs into my house, how am I going to commit to that original statement that I said, that original promise? I won't be able to. I'll be like, what? There's drugs? Yeah, but you said you'd love me forever. Yeah, but uh, 
I don't want drugs in the house. Yeah, but you said you'd love me forever. Love should override anything, shouldn't it? And that's when I create new criteria. Uh, love doesn't override everything. It can't override everything. If I make love override everything, then I start becoming unhappy. Then I start uh, playing a victim more and more and being a victim more and more. Being a victim to my own lack of commitment to myself. Like, we can commit to someone else, but first and foremost, you commit to yourself. So, I know what I'm saying right now probably isn't too helpful to make you feel any better, but what I'm trying to convey is that no matter what someone says, when they're in love and they're blind to the nuances and uh, little things that might bother them, it changes. Their criteria changes. Your criteria changes. Their criteria changes. Little things change. So everything needs to be consistently and continuously evaluated as you go along. That doesn't mean you're always scrutinizing. It just means that relationships are always a work in progress. Now, you can approach a relationship with an unconditional love for your partner, but good luck getting it back. (laughs) It just doesn't really happen that often. Unconditional love usually happens with moms and dads and children, and sometimes it doesn't, or the love goes in one direction and not the other. But sometimes you'll find parents that, I don't care what my son did, I don't care if he killed a thousand people, I still love him and I still think he should be out of jail. So there is that kind of unconditional love. No matter what they do, I will still love them. But then when you do that, you're almost bordering on I'm open to abuse. I don't care how many people you sleep with, honey, as long as you love me. I will love you no matter what. I mean, in a romantic, intimate relationship. I don't care how many people you sleep with, as long as you bring your love home to me. I mean, how many people are going to say that? They're not. So the idea of love overriding everything just isn't true. I mean, if it's true for you, then you're probably not in a sexual relationship. You're probably in an, uh, a companionship of some sort or a, um, a family relationship of some sort. You know, I could be wrong, but in every healthy romantic relationship that I've ever been exposed to, the criteria changes when a person makes different decisions that are outside of what the other person expected or outside of their values. So reevaluation needs to take place. It's just like what my wife did. She committed to me. She married me. And then four years later, she's reevaluating if she wants to continue being in a relationship where she feels bad all the time. I don't want her to feel bad all the time. So why would I want her to be in a relationship with someone, me, who makes her feel bad all the time? When we were talking about it, When she was discussing divorce, I didn't want it to end, and I didn't necessarily go along the path of, hey, I don't want you to feel bad, so don't be with me, because I was in the moment, I was feeling hurt, I was feeling rejected, I was feeling unlovable, but uh, she still wanted what she wanted for herself to seek happiness, to seek peace and satisfaction in life, and I wasn't a part of that plan. So what did I do? What did I have to do? It all comes back to closure. I'm not going to receive the closure I want from her. I will never hear the exact words from any of my ex-girlfriends or my ex-wife that I need to hear to reach closure. Never. Because when they left me, I didn't want to hear, this is the reason I left you. I wanted to hear, I'm coming back, I made a mistake. That's what I wanted to hear. And that's the only thing that would have given me closure. That's not going to happen. It could, but most of the time, that doesn't happen. So what do we have to do? We have to close the door. We have to choose closure. You have to choose closure. You have to say, today, we're not together. Today, he is not with me. Today, we are not a couple. So I must close the door today. And you might think, what if he changes his mind in a week? Great, then you reevaluate it then. But today, if you keep the door open, then you keep the door open to pain. You keep the door open to feeling less worthy than you are. 
You keep the door open to feeling less lovable than you are. And when you keep that door open, you're in that rut. You're in that stagnation. So it's very critical that you create the closure and don't wait for it outside yourself. Waiting for closure outside yourself is like waiting for someone else to change so that your life will get better. That is a formula for disaster, a formula for a miserable life. Do not wait for someone to change for your life to get better. You have to make the changes in you, which means you might have to close doors on people because they are not taking the actions you want them to take. And how do you know if they're ever going to take those actions? I say give yourself a deadline. If you just broke up and then three weeks go by and you're like, maybe he'll come back or maybe she'll come back or maybe something will happen and we'll get back together. If that thought process is in your mind, then give yourself, what, another two weeks and say, if it doesn't happen on this date, I'm closing the door. That's it. When my wife left me and I asked her the question, is there a chance that we can ever get back together? She looked around, she thought about it, and she said, no. And as much as that hurt, I was climbing the mountain of pain and I finally reached the precipice. I decided to close the door. And the very next day, I was contacting uh, the family court to find out how to get a divorce. And I didn't want to do it. (laughs) I did not want to do it. But I knew that the path to healing was to create closure. So that's what I did. I went through the pain. I went through the hard steps to create the closure for myself. No one will create closure for you. You need to do that. So if you're still looking for, you know, why he did what he did and the reasons and why he didn't keep his commitment to you, here's another angle. And um, I can actually relate to this guy a little bit, at least in my past self, my former self. Because I used to hate confrontation and I would make up anything in order to avoid confrontation. What is confrontation? Confrontation is making someone else feel bad or not wanting to make someone upset with you. I wanted to avoid that at all costs. So I would make up all kinds of crap. (laughs) And that's what it sounds like uh, your ex is doing. Making up all kinds of crap just so he doesn't have to tell you the truth. I guarantee you the truth is not, you're unlovable, so I'm not going to love you. That's not truth. Everyone is lovable. The truth is probably a lot different than that. The truth is going to be about him and what he wants in his life and what he wants for himself. And it is possible that he just lied to himself from day one. Who knows? But his truth is not the truth. His truth is just his life. And what he's doing to avoid confrontation, not express himself, not be honest with you and others, uh, not be honest with himself, not be authentic, that's his truth. Because I guarantee you, if you go into a relationship authentically, from day one, telling your truth, you're not going to run into strife and conflict. I mean, it's rare because you're going to be honest. And that means everything's laid out on the table. Hey, here are all my emotions, all my dysfunctions. Uh, everything that I think will be a problem in the relationship. Can you handle it? Because if you can't, this isn't going to work out. Then the other person goes, wow, this is everything? And then they might say, well, there might be more along the way too, but this is all I can think of. Okay, well, that doesn't bother me. That doesn't bother me. That bothers me a little bit. Let's talk about that. That bothers me a lot. Let's talk about that. And then you talk and you're open and you're honest. And you talk about your fears. You talk about... Uh, what you think repels other people. I mean, how many times do we talk about that? What I think repels people for me is, bah, you know, <laughs> whatever comes out. And they might go, what? You think that repels people? That doesn't repel me. And you might be surprised by some of the things. I mean, that's what I told my girlfriend when I first met her. Look, I'm broke. <laughs> I live with my mom. I'm doing, I'm doing work that's not making any money. Uh, if you still want to talk, great. Otherwise, I wish you the best. And she laughed. (laughs) She thought it was honest. And I was like, what? This is the first time I've ever been that honest, that transparent with anyone. You know what that's done for our relationship? It has given us a strength to be honest with each other, to be expressive with each other, to be genuine. And, you know, we still had hiccups. We still had obstacles. And as they showed up, 
We talked about them. We brought them out into the open, and we still do that today. Like uh, One of the things I demand from her is to never hold things in. Yes, you can go uh, aside and process for an hour or two or even a day, but I, you know, by the next day, I want to know what's going on. <laughs> Don't give me silence. I want to know what's happening, even if you think it'll offend me or make me upset or even make me leave. Tell me what's going on. Put it on the table. Let's work with it. When we don't have something to work with and you sweep it under the rug, it becomes an underlying, unresolved, um, unspoken negative influence in our relationship. Because you know what happens, right? Your partner does something that makes you upset. And instead of saying something, if you don't choose to say anything, you hold it in. And then you have this underlying feeling with you all the time. And you keep thinking about what they did or what they said. And, uh, this underlying feeling tends to fester inside of you. And then you're lashing out for different reasons than the original reason. And then pretty soon, maybe a few weeks or a few months later, you're upset with them and you don't even know why. It's because of the original festering that takes place when you first uh, repress and not choose to confront. You don't want to do that. You don't want to keep that stuff inside of you because that can last years and years. And now you have original pain that you never addressed. And then when new triggers come and new emotional pain comes up, you have to deal with that emotional pain, but you still have the underlayer of that uh, festering negative influence. And that is completely poisonous to your relationship and it will degrade. This is what happens when you don't show up authentically. And when you don't show up authentically, your partner's probably not going to either. I mean, it can happen. I chose to show up authentically in this relationship and it took my girlfriend a while to trust that that's how it really is because she's not used to it. <laughs> she's not used to people just being honest, being expressive. I mean, I'm sure she's had relationships like that, but to be able to trust your partner, to be vulnerable with them, to be completely expressive, to be completely authentic, that takes uh, special people, which is why it's important to find out if they are that special person on day one or at least as close to day one as you can. Because when, they, when it comes out later and you're choosing not to confront and you hold it in, then the festering continues and on and on and on. So, Marsha, let me just close it with this. You are absolutely lovable. You are absolutely worthy. And you have to show this to yourself. Because to meet someone who says they love you in one instance and then the next they say they don't, that's not really loving you. That doesn't mean you're unlovable. It just means that they are incapable of showing you authentic love. This guy is incapable of doing it. So if he says to you next week, I'd like to come back. Uh, I made a mistake. I would be very, very wary. Uh, the red flags go up. This is him going, well, I didn't get what I was looking for anywhere else. So I'm just going to come back to you. Hopefully you have enough self-worth and self-love that you don't allow people like that back into your life. Because that really might be what it comes down to. How much do you love yourself to not allow people who can't be authentic with you into your life? How much do you value yourself so that you don't let in people that give you these mixed signals? Mixed signals, that's immaturity. Mixed signals is, I'm afraid to express how I really feel. So I'm going to give you a mixed signal so that you can't really tell what's going on. I want you to feel confused. Mixed signals have no place in romance, in my opinion. Don't be with someone who gives you mixed signals. Once you get the mixed signal, you have some closure. You can choose to go, whoa, this guy gives mixed signals. I want you to be straight up with me. And then they go, no, I really do love you. I really do. And then three days later, no, I, I really don't love you. Now you have your answer, giving you mixed signals. This is a person that is incapable of making a commitment to you. They're incapable of it. It's their thing. It's their issue. It has nothing to do with your worth and your lovability. This person is not for you. This is where you choose to close the door so you don't hold on to the pain. Non-closure can be the continuation of pain. It's unfinished business. And in romance, you don't want unfinished business. You want to make the decision to close the door or not. You want to make the decision for closure. Don't wait for someone else. 
There's so much more we could talk about here, Marsha. I know there's some deep-level pain going on, but please do show love for yourself. Don't let people in that give you mixed signals, and don't just settle for people that give you enough. You deserve the best. Wait for the best, because the best comes when you are loving and compassionate to yourself first. Thank you again, Marsha. I appreciate you. And thanks for listening. We'll be right back. I'll say some thank yous and then we'll close the show. Back in a moment. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Overwhelmed Brain. And I just want to do a quick mention of The Overwhelmed Brain book, The A to Z of Self-Empowerment. Just imagine all the key components I talk about on this show in a single book that you can carry around with you and, you know, highlight, markup, pencil, all that kind of stuff. And, of course, they have it on ebook and Kindle as well. So check it out. Go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or go to the website, theoverwhelmedbrain.com, and click on the picture of the book. And finally, thank you to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for some of the music transitions in The Overwhelmed Brain. And I'm going to close the show with a little story about an early, early episode of The Overwhelmed Brain. I don't know if you've ever heard of Jordan Harbinger. He uh, hosts the Art of Charm podcast. And uh, I want to tell you this story because when I first had Jordan on the air, the very first thing I said to him was, all right, with us we have uh, Justin. Justin, how are you doing? And uh, Jordan said, Justin, who's Justin? (laughs) And I said, what do you mean? And uh, and I said, oh, uh, uh," and I looked down at my notes and I go, oh, my God. God, it's Jordan. I'm so sorry. I said, what a way to start the show. That is so disrespectful. I am so sorry. And I really meant it. I just, I laughed because it was ridiculous. I felt ridiculous. I felt like an idiot. And at the same time, I was being authentic. I was just like, oh, I'm being so disrespectful. You're absolutely right. That was just the worst mistake I could have made. I was just starting this show, The Overwhelmed Brain, and I had a very respectable someone I should respect guest on the show and the first thing I did was disrespect him by calling him the wrong name so after I said what I said you know I'm so sorry that's so disrespectful he just cracked up (laughs) because he is a veteran podcaster he's been doing this for many many years and it probably made him chuckle knowing that here's this uh, very green guy on the air calling him by the wrong name and to him, it was just like, oh, where is this going to go, you know? And so uh, he's laughing. And I said, well, you know, I'll just take that out in editing and we could start over. And he goes, you should leave that in. And I thought about it for like two nanoseconds and said, you know what? I will. And because I did that, that really felt good. I mean, that really started my authenticity on the air. I decided to leave in those silly mistakes that I sometimes make and not edit them out because it's more authentic. It is transparent. And we were just talking about authenticity and transparency. And uh, we ended up having a great conversation. I think it was on uh, nonverbal communication. But um, my main focus here is that after that interview, after that blunder that I did with Jordan and our post-interview talk after it was done, I still felt bad. I was like, of all possible ways that this could have started, I made like the biggest broadcasting mistake I could ever make. I just thought that this is it. Uh, (laughs) This guy's going to think I'm a complete idiot and not want to associate with me at all uh, from this point on. It's just like, well, that was a waste of time and uh, I'm on this uh, amateur show and this won't go anywhere. Yet since then, we've become friends. I mean, we're friends online. We're friends on the phone. We've never met in person, but I consider him a friend. So my point is that what started off as what someone might call a bad first impression turns out to be probably what caused us to be friends in the end. And I just find that fascinating. I even think about it now and go, isn't that weird that I made a mistake and he laughed about that mistake and that created a bond has lasted and continues to go on. And I think that's a great lesson to walk away with. Not that you have to create a mistake to make people laugh and now you're friends, (laughs) but the idea of 
what do you do after the mistake? Who do you become? Who are you when that happens? Because I've seen this like on TV and even on radio shows where someone makes a mistake and then they feel really bad and they go inward and they go, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And then they just feel bad instead of just going, what an idiot I am. (laughs) They just hold it in. They don't express what's going on inside of them. And in that moment, I decided to express what was going on inside of me. I said it out loud. Oh my God, what an idiot I am. I just disrespected you. I have, I have this like celebrity on the air and I'm disrespecting him. <laughs> and I said that out loud. I don't think I said celebrity, but it was a big deal for me back then. And that broke the ice because I was genuine, because I was authentic, because I didn't hold it in. And I actually had some negative self-talk that I, instead of keeping it inner dialogue, I made it outer dialogue. My inner self-talk came out. What an idiot I am. (laughs) That was stupid. That was disrespectful. And when that inner self-talk came out, I couldn't repress it. I couldn't bury it. It didn't become a festering underlayer of emotions. It came out. And I'm going to put words in Jordan's mouth here, but I really believe that he saw that as authentic and knew that he was talking to someone that wasn't going to play a mind game or hide the truth. It was an acceptance of the imperfection of us humans. (laughs) That's how I think I see this. It's the acceptance that I am imperfect and that I don't mind telling you how imperfect I am, how many mistakes I make. I don't mind telling you, hey, I made an error. I mean, this works when in regular jobs, too, that I've had over the years. When I've chosen to fess up to my mistakes and say, look, I just made the biggest mistake and uh, here's what I'm going to do to try to fix it. But I just wanted to let you know I made this mistake. When I do that, I've always received compassion. I mean, sometimes I'll get yelled at. (laughs) But because I was willing to allow my imperfections to show to the world, just like I do on this show, I tell you many, many stories. And I allow all my imperfections, well, most of my imperfections, we're going to be honest here, most of my imperfections out onto the air. Uh, But for the most part, I just tell you what I do in my life and tell you the mistakes I made. Heck, I even tell you that I was emotionally abusive to my wife. I let you know because I want you to feel comfortable in your imperfections too. You're not perfect. (laughs) You're not perfect the way you are. I mean, that's like the opposite of what we hear, right? You're perfect just the way you are. You're not. You're not perfect. And be okay with that. And flaunt it. Flaunt your imperfections. Let people know about them. I'm being semi-serious here. (laughs) I don't know your situation. I don't know your job. I don't know your friends and family. But don't be afraid to let some of you out into the world. Because sometimes good things happen because of it. Most of the time, I think. I think... When you let your real self, your authentic self, out into the world more and more, guess what? You attract authentic people back. And you find that your circle of friends and family, the closest people to you, are more authentic than if you had not been a genuine, honest, authentic person. If you chose to put on a mask and be someone else, put out a different persona, guess who you're going to attract? I'm not going to (laughs) say. I'm just saying that the more in integrity you are within yourself, the more people of integrity you attract to you and you're attracted to as well. Because if you are hiding behind some sort of disingenuous mask, you'll probably end up also being attracted to people also hiding behind that disingenuous mask because they don't really want to show their real selves You don't really want to show your real self. So you feel comfortable around people who don't want to show their real selves. And then later on you go, they didn't show me their real self. They didn't show up as authentic. Well, think about who you are, how you show up, and that might give you some answers. So there's my Jordan Harbinger experience. (laughs) And the first time I realized that authenticity was a path for me 
and it has brought me very good people in my life and continues to do so today. How can you start this if you're not on that path yet? Well, all you have to do is keep your mind open and step into your power and be firm in your decisions and actions so that you can create the life you want. When you're trying to be expressive and authentic, just remember, always take steps to grow and evolve because you are powerful beyond measure. And above all, and this is something I absolutely know to be true about you, you are amazing. Amazing.